through the Lord Jesus Christ, we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We ask thee that today thou shalt guide us, that thou shalt fill us, that thou shalt speak to us. We want to live Christ as well as talk about him. And for this we need that thou shalt take possession of our being, that thou shalt teach us by thy Spirit, that we may know what it is to walk in thee. Bless each heart as we listen and speak together. In Jesus' name, amen. We come now to the ninth and last of our studies in the Epistle to the Galatians, chapter 6. Having concluded the main doctrinal portion of the Epistle, the Apostle now gives practical counsel on Christian living. In verse 1 we read, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Now here we learn how we're to live as a group of believers. This verse reveals our Lord's desire for oneness and for love within the body of Christ, even as he pointed out in the 13th of John, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples, if you have love one to another. And in nothing is Christian love more evident than when it covers up sin in others, shields the guilty from the tongues of gossip, and lifts the one who has fallen, and helps restore him to a place of usefulness in the church. First, this passage shows that it is not abnormal for a true Christian to slip back into sin. Here is no condoning the sin, here is no lawlessness, there is no antinomianism. The Bible nowhere teaches that a saved man may relax and need not concern himself about sin. Everywhere the opposite is taught. Nevertheless, the fact remains that sin does sometimes overtake the believer. And when such a situation arises, the brethren who are spiritual are to do everything possible to restore the sinning one. The Greek word translated restore was a medical term in classical times, a medical term for setting a bone when there had been a broken arm or leg so that the fractured member could knit and be restored to complete usefulness. And this is what God himself does. For we read in the Psalms, Make me to hear joy and gladness, so that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. The Lord invites the spiritual believer to participate in this divine process of bone setting. Sometimes, for reasons of pride, the members of a family will unite to protect the family reputation by paying back money that's stolen by one member. The true Christian is to be as zealous to protect the reputation of the sinning fellow believer not for pride, but for meekness, recalling that he himself is capable of the same sin. Verse 2, bear you one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. The spiritual believer will show love toward every other believer, and will seek to help, to strengthen, to build, to restore, to comfort. And it's in this way that he fulfills the law of Christ, the only law for any follower of the Savior, the law of love. Having shown that all other law is hateful to God, Paul now reveals that love is the fulfilling of the law. Furthermore, if a Christian does not turn outward in love toward others, he turns inward in love for himself. For verse 3 says, 
For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. There are many believers that live as though Christ had said, without me you can't do very much. But what Christ really said was, without me you can do nothing. A well-known Bible teacher once said to a venerable missionary, Oh, pray for me that I may be nothing. And the wise man answered, You are nothing. Take it by faith. Any believer who does not know this truth deceives himself. And now verse 4 and 5, But let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For every man shall bear his own burden. And you see, this is the other side of the coin. Only when a believer recognizes his own nothingness can he have the joy of knowing that God works through him. And this is the way that we're to test our own work. And then we may rejoice that our work is in God through us and that none of it has any human origin. Each believer answers to God alone and is to stand before him alone. Every believer must do all that he can to help every other brother in Christ. And yet no individual should be a parasite. And thus, although we bear one another's burdens, we must be careful to bear our own burdens. And yet one phase of the work of the whole body of Christ must have special consideration. One chosen by God to teach the gospel is to live by the gospel. In the Old Testament, contrary to popular belief, there were 13 tribes in Israel, for although Joseph was one of the 12 sons of Jacob, not he, but his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, became heads of tribes. There were 12 tribes that had title to land, but the 13th, Levi, had no land. Its portion was the Lord, and the Levites were his priests. Now, under the New Testament economy, although the elder or the minister is not a priest, he is nevertheless to receive his living expenses, as did the priests of the Old Testament era. And so we read in verse 6, let him that is taught in the word communicate, give, unto him that teacheth in all good things. Put very plainly, the congregation is to maintain the pastor-teacher. The old word communicate is better rendered share. Those who are taught in the word of God are to share their material possessions with their teacher. The father of the late President Woodrow Wilson was pastor of a small Presbyterian church in Virginia and he drove a beautifully groomed team of horses. One day he hitched them up in front of the general store, and as he turned to enter, he passed a group of men who eyed his patched trousers and worn, shiny coat. And one of the men said, Preacher, your horses look better than you do. And Mr. Wilson replied, I take care of my horses, and my congregation takes care of me. There are thousands of faithful ministers who serve their people devotedly and put in a hundred-hour week for less compensation than that received by carpenters, plasterers, and electricians for a 35-hour week. This situation dishonors the word of God. When we understand this, we shall not make the usual erroneous interpretation of verse 7, which is often taken to refer to loose living and high sinning. For the verse refers to the financial obligations of believers to support the cause of the Church of Christ. It says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. 
and let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, and especially to them who are of the household of faith. Now this does not refer to sowing wild oats, but this passage refers to how a Christian uses his money. If you want a text to show that the sowing of wild oats is followed by a harvest of thorns and briars, you must not use this paragraph as your authority. You may turn to Proverbs 22.8, He that soweth iniquity shall reap vanity, or as the revision has it, he who sows injustice shall reap calamity. Hosea says that those who sow the wind reap the whirlwind, but our text in Galatians 6 refers to offerings in the church collection and not to wild oats. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap, means in the measure that a Christian gives money to spiritual causes, he shall reap blessing from God. The one who is taught in the word is to share with the teacher in all material things. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a Christian plants when he spends his money, that shall he also reap. The believer who spends most of his money on himself reaps no more than the frittering rottenness that goes with selfish spending. Our text is the Holy Spirit's application of a passage from the Sermon on the Mount to the life of the believer. Spending money on things that are merely of the flesh brings no satisfaction. In fact, it's a divine principle that God makes all things unimportant in the eye of the Spirit. We look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. Temporal things will all be left behind. What we send ahead will be on deposit for use in heaven. The distinction set forth here is that some people have their heaven in a bank and others have their bank in heaven. Moreover, the believer is not to sigh and moan when a cause is presented or another offering requested. They're not to say, oh, another collection. The Bible says we are not to be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. The principle set down here may require self-sacrifice but it leads to complete satisfaction. And verse 10 has to do with priorities. What are you to give to first? And it says, As we therefore have opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially to them who are of the household of faith. Now there are a thousand good causes asking for every dollar that we can afford to give. How shall we decide among so many things? Church, radio broadcasts, Bible societies, Red Cross, community chest, cancer fund. God tells us that we need not be perplexed if we follow him closely. We love all the human race, and we are to be as open-handed for famine relief in India as for the local hospital. We are to give as readily to relieve orphans in Korea as the support of an orphan down the street. But then the Bible here gives the standard of choice, as we have opportunity. Now this means that if you have a million dollars, you can distribute gifts to a wide range of activities. But if you do not have a million dollars, you are to confine your giving to the needs of those who are of the household of faith. If I have a dollar and many hands are stretching toward me in order to get it, I think along these lines. Suppose that cause A has a serious deficit. Can its officers appeal to Jew and Gentile, Christian and non-Christian? If so, then I do not give to that cause. 
But if cause B is so Christian in its outreach and impact that no unsaved man would be interested in it, to that cause I give my dollar. Only very wealthy believers are to support causes that do not minister directly in the name and for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. And even they are to give priority to Christian causes. Every cup of cold water that we give is in the name of our Savior God. Now at this point in Galatians, the subject matter changes. Did Paul write the entire epistle to the Galatians with his own hand? Or does he begin at this point to write the postscript in his own handwriting that characterizes all his epistles? Paul always finished a letter in his own sprawling script, written painfully by a man who was almost blind. Perhaps Paul himself did write the entire epistle by his own hand, or perhaps he began at this point. At all events, he calls attention to his own handwriting. As the Revised Standard Version puts it, verse 11 says, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. He had already reminded them in chapter 4 that they would have been willing to pluck out their own eyes if that would have enabled him to see. And I'm inclined to believe that Paul's own handwriting began here. Because in the next verses he reviews and sums up the argument set down in the earlier chapters. Taking the pen in his own hand, he resumes his attack on the legalists. In verse 12 and 13 he says, As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised, only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised, that they may glory in your flesh. The whole conflict between law and grace boils down to its true source, the desire of the individual for credit. Man is incurably addicted to the idea of doing something for himself. He wants to take credit for what God has done, to feel that he has a part in his own salvation, or that he is keeping himself saved. And all this is because he wants a good showing in the flesh. It certainly is not to the glory of God. And although the Galatians, Gentiles, had submitted to circumcision, they were not keeping the law. As it was then, so is it today. Entire denominations exalt law-keeping as a condition of salvation. Yet neither leaders nor followers have ever kept the law. Even though they themselves do not keep the law, the leaders of these groups desire to involve their followers with them in this dreadful business. The man who gains a convert to the idea that there is no salvation for those who have not been water baptized, has carved something out of the convert's soul and consumed it, fattening upon it to his own glory. The same is true of those who convince others that they must keep the seventh day or Sunday as a Sabbath or bow to ecclesiastical authority. And Paul wanted none of this because the Holy Spirit wants none of it. Now verse 14, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. He who knows the truth of grace alone must turn to Jesus Christ and give him all the glory. Christ on the cross, not the cross itself, 
But Christ in his act of immolation, redemption, expiation, propitiation, reconciliation, salvation, Christ created a state of death between the believer and the world. Because of Christ's death, the world, with its ravenous appetite for self, must condemn the true believer to death. And just as surely, because of Christ's death, the believer who has been raised with Christ to newness of life counts the world as dead, and himself as dead to the world. So in Christ Jesus, our life is not legalism or non-legalism, but the life of Christ within us. We have become partakers of the divine nature, and we must let God's life be our life. Paul is now about to pronounce his benediction, not the false benediction which calls down the blessing of God on saint and sinner alike, as though he were saying the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, whether you're good or bad, saved or lost. But Paul's benediction is selective, dividing men into two groups, the saved and the lost, those who trust in Christ alone and those who do not trust him or who trust in him plus something else. For he says, and as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them and mercy and upon the Israel of God. Now this verse contains the reason why I always ask God to give restlessness to those who have not been born again and to those who are walking far from him and to give peace to his yielded own. The blessings of God belong only to the people of God, those who by faith in Christ alone have become the spiritual children of Abraham. The epistle is finished. Paul has delivered his soul. It has been a terribly hard letter to write. It has caused deep pain, like the pain of a woman in travail. It has meant severe analysis of the Galatians and severe criticism of them because of their practices. These are the people whom he has loved. Could it be that they are tares instead of wheat? He thought they were founded in the truth. Is this a fact? And in verse 17 he says, From henceforth let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Now Paul had a right to set himself over against these false teachers. He had stood for the truth. He had been stoned and beaten for his stand against legalism and the scars were upon his body. He knew that he was in the right. His scars showed that he was willing to die for the truth of Christ alone. So in verse 18 he says, Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Paul's heart goes out to the Galatians in one last thought of love. Oh, how wonderful this is when we recall how sternly he spoke to them at the beginning. I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you unto another gospel. This was his opening rebuke. And again, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? But now, as he says farewell, his great heart yearns for them to know the fullness of the Spirit in their daily lives. And thus we have his great benediction. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Indeed, they were brethren. 
They had been born again. They had been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. They were dear to the heart of God, even though they were entangled in the meshes of a dead law. Paul wrote this letter so that they might understand that their new birth had begun in the Spirit and that they were to continue living in the Spirit. If any of you listening today has become entangled with the law, the grace of God can cut you free and enable you to live for Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit to the honor of God and to the blessing of those around you. And our God and Father, we pray thee that the Holy Spirit shall take these great truths to us and we may know what it is to stand fast in the freedom wherewith Jesus Christ hath set us free that we may never again be slaves of law, but rather that the glorious liberty of the full flowing spirit of Christ may be manifest in our lives. We ask it in the name and for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We thank and praise thee for the joy that thou dost give in our hearts. We rejoice that at this time we may turn aside from the ordinary tasks of life and may have a day of relaxation and rest in thee. We thank thee for thy fatherly care. We thank thee that thou art a God who smiles when thy children are pleased and who rejoices with our rejoicing. Make this day and season rich to our hearts and we will give thee the praise through Jesus Christ our Lord. At this time, I want to read to you three verses out of the book of Nehemiah in chapter 12. And Mataniah, who with his brethren was in charge of the songs of thanksgiving, and Babukiah and Uno, their brethren, stood opposite them in their service. And then in verse 24, to praise and to give thanks according to the commandment of David, the man of God. And then in verse 46, for in the days of David and Asaph of old, there was a chief of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. It's a wonderful thing to sing songs of praise in circumstances that are dark and terrible. I shall show how dark and terrible were the days in which our text is set. After the First World War, I had the awesome privilege of going over a great deal of the battlefields on the Western Front almost all the way from the sea to Switzerland. The armistice had come on the 11th of November, 1918. By March, I was free from all army duties and was centered in Brussels in Belgium. With an army car and chauffeur of the Belgian army at my disposal, I supervised the distribution of clothing and food in some of the needy areas. The people in the worst of the war areas were numbed by the shock of all that they'd gone through. The silence of the guns after years of firing seemed more throbbing than the pounding of the guns. The weather was still gray and misty when I went over the old battlefield of Ypres where so many thousands had died. Gutted tanks and discarded cannon dotted the landscape. Barbed wire, hundreds of miles of it, was tangled and coiled to repel armies that would not come that way again for another generation. Now that scene must have been nothing compared with the Jerusalem to which Nehemiah and his followers returned from the captivity. God had pronounced a curse upon Israel and decreed desolation to come upon the land and the city. And while the complete fulfillment of the prophecy probably came centuries later, 
the description was certainly partly true after Jerusalem had been abandoned for 70 years. We remember in Isaiah 34, thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its fortresses. It shall be the haunt of jackals, an abode for ostriches, and wild beasts shall meet with hyenas. The wild goat shall cry to his fellow, Yea, there shall the night hag alight, and find for herself a resting place. There shall the owl nest, and lay, and hatch, and gather her young in her shadow. Yea, there shall the kites be gathered, each one with her mate. Now, into that sort of wilderness, Nehemiah and his companions came back to build the city. In the face of every sort of opposition, the walls of the city were finished. There was a time of great rejoicing, and then the time came to dedicate the walls to the Lord. At this point in the narrative, we find a long list of participants. We read, Mataniah, with his brethren, was in charge of the songs of thanksgiving. Opposite them stood another group in the service. It doesn't say what they did. May we smile at the story and wonder if those who could not carry a tune were separated into a distinct group? Oh, if you're tone deaf and if you mumble along in a discord of cacophony, don't be too concerned. Just be sure that your heart is sending forth the right harmony, and it doesn't really matter how it comes out of the mouth. For while the mouth may speak out of the abundance of the heart, revealing the things with which the heart is most truly concerned, the mouth can reveal by its singing the inward grace that is ours when the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit. Such a duet, God and I, singing together in the heart, that's heard and known all over heaven, and it can drown out the music of any angel choir. However, perhaps this passage indicates antiphonal singing. One group sang and the other group responded. It's interesting to note that the 24th verse states that this praise and giving of thanks was according to the commandment of David, the man of God. And this is why I entitled my subject today, The Command to Give Thanks. Nehemiah was restoring the order and worship as it had been in the days of Israel's greatness. When I began to meditate upon this passage, I was struck by the fact that uh, something in David's Psalms is considered as a commandment. Is it possible to conceive of the Psalms as commandments as well as exhortations? With this in mind, let's go back to the Psalms and consider some of them as definite commands of God. Bless the Lord, O my soul, thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not covet, make a joyful noise to the Lord. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Honor thy father and thy mother. Sing unto the Lord a new song. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. O give thanks to the Lord and call upon his name. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Thou shalt not steal. But is it possible to consider these all as commandments? And the more closely I looked at these psalms, the more I saw that they are in the imperative mood and that they are explicit commandments. And after I had found here in our text in the book of Nehemiah that they at that time considered the instructions to praise and thank God as a definite commandment, then I discovered that this is also stated explicitly in the Psalms themselves. Listen, Psalm 81. Sing aloud to God our strength. 
shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Raise a song, sound the timbrel, the sweet lyre with the harp. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon on our feast day, for it is a statute for Israel, an ordinance of the God of Jacob. He made it a decree in Joseph when he went out over the land or against the land of Egypt. Now there it's flatly stated three times that it's a commandment, a statute, an ordinance, a decree. Now at first it may seem to be an astonishing thing that so many of these great calls to worship, to praise and to thanksgiving that are found in the Psalms are presented as commandments. But as we look more closely, our amazement disappears and we understand that because he is our heavenly father, he's bound to teach us spiritual politeness. For that is exactly what thanksgiving is, spiritual politeness. Is there one of us that did not hear a thousand times in our earliest youth, say thank you, say thank you? Why did we hear it a thousand times? Simply because 999 times were not quite enough. At the outset of our lives, we are no more grateful to God than a child is to his parents. Oh, there may be those who wish to exercise discipline in a modern way and not ask the child to say thank you until he truly feels it from the heart. Well, if any such system of child education is followed, the child will grow up to be a rude and boorish ingrate. A child can never know gratitude until long, long after he has learned the simple politeness of thanksgiving. Let me go to the dictionary to show the difference between thanksgiving and gratitude. One reference book distinguishes between the two ideas in this simple way. Thankfulness is defined as the outward expression of gratitude, while gratitude is defined as a feeling of appreciation for favors shown. Now, with this distinction in mind, we can understand that a parent has to teach a child thankfulness in order that the child may grow to be truly grateful. Every generation of parents has to fight the battle of ingratitude with the Adamic nature of their children. As the years go by, and as the children gain more experience from life, then they begin to appreciate all the sacrifices that were made for them. And their love and their gratitude towards their parents increases, provided they're not completely corroded by a warped self-interest. I know the case of a daughter who had all the outward forms of gentility and good breeding, but was extremely ungrateful to her mother. However, after the daughter married and had children of her own, she understood her mother's love and wrote her a wonderful letter expressing her love and her deep appreciation for all that had been done for her. Now, I believe that we are God's dear children and that he loves us and that he wants us to be polite, but much more. He wants us to be grateful with full hearts. It's necessary for him to train us, and this is why his people are commanded to recognize all that he is and all that he has done for them. For the history of Israel, as we find it in the Old Testament and in the Psalms, is a history of a small child who has been taught every lesson, but still insists on having his own way. These lessons were taught by God at the Red Sea when the children of Israel passed out of Egypt. But they were not learned there even though God taught them. 
The people sang with their lips, but they did not sing with their hearts. God says, you sing with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. And this is set forth in the New Testament as God describes it in 1 Corinthians 10. I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud of God's glory and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. That is, they changed from antagonism to obedience and all ate the same supernatural food and all drank the same supernatural drink. For they drank from the supernatural rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. And then we read, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. And the passage then continues, Now these things are warnings for us, not to desire evil as they did. Then there follows a list of evils which the children of Israel committed. I pass over them all except the one that is pertinent to our theme. For in verse 10 of the chapter we read, We must not put the Lord to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. And we must not grumble, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Grumbling, that's the opposite of praise and thanksgiving. And this is why God had to judge his people so frequently. They took everything from him and they were not thankful. They honored him with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. Those who were outside the covenant had gone the full road of lack of gratitude, lack of thankfulness, all the way to abandonment by God. And this is why God had ultimately left them. We read in the first chapter of Romans, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him but they became futile in their thinking and their senseless minds were darkened. And following this we read three times that God gave them up. But we today, we are his people. We are the sheep of his pasture. Shall we not hear him as he commands us? He's told us that his commandments are not grievous. And he knows that when we praise him and thank him, we're beginning to understand him a little more and that this will increase our love for him and make it possible for him to do still more for us. It's necessary that we understand this because our lives are lived in, in such a hurry that we do not take time to think of him and to meditate upon his goodness so that our hearts may be drawn to him. As I study the Bible and prepare radio messages and Bible expositions, it's possible to become so engrossed in the mechanics of the work that the Lord is not quite in first place. It's necessary to make rules with one's own heart lest the process deteriorate to this slightly less than the best. And so when the last line on any given sheet of paper has been written and the time comes to adjust the carbon copy to the next sheet, then it is time to stop and refresh my soul. Have I worshipped as I should during the last 30 lines of typing? Have I stopped to magnify the Lord when he has given me some thought about his wonder and his majesty? Sometimes I get hungry and I buzz our interphone to ask for an apple or a sandwich. And sometimes I find my heart running slightly dry and I have to stop and I have to say, my heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. 
And now I know that if these periods of dryness come to me, and if I find it necessary while studying the Bible to cry out for freshness from the living God, it is likewise urgent for you to line your path with moments of reminder to turn your heart to him in true praise and gratitude. If you're a surgeon facing a long operation, have a procedure of the spirit established alongside your procedure of operation. Before the incision, there can be the simple cry, O oh Lord, give me wisdom and skill. And when the first step has been accomplished, there can be the pause, which need not take more than half a second to say in your heart, Thank you, Lord, I'm grateful. And so on until the last stitch is taken and the gloves come off. Or if you're selling something or writing letters for an impatient boss or taking care of the children or doing some other normal act of the daily routine, fit your day with resting places where you can obey the command of God and be thankful. He will not forget this. And as often as possible, speak a word of praise to someone close to you who's also a believer. Because we read in the third chapter of Malachi, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord heeded and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and thought on his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, my special possession on the day when I act, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Why is it that David was said in the Bible to be a man after God's own heart? He was guilty of adultery and murder and many other grievous sins. But I believe the reason was that David, more than any man in the Bible, abounded with praise and thanksgiving. In all his yielded moments, his heart was panting after God as a deer in a dry place pants for the water brooks. And when he was out of the will of God, he came back and repented and praised God. The bones that had been broken were caused to rejoice, as he says in the 51st Psalm. The New Testament Christian can still pray in David's own language. The writer of An Estimate of David in the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia has put together a prayer composed of verses out of the Psalms. How certain it is that our hearts can echo this down in the 20th century. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. We call upon our souls and all that is within us to bless his holy name. The lines have fallen unto us in pleasant places. The Lord hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us after our iniquities. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done that which is evil in thy sight. Have mercy upon us, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out our transgressions. Create also in us clean hearts, O Lord, and renew right spirits within us. And now, Lord, what wait we for? Our hope is in thee. With thee is the fountain of life. In thy light we shall see light. Lift thou up the light of thy countenance upon us. We commit our way to thee. We cast our burdens upon thee. Keep us as the apple of thine eye. Hide us under the shadow of thy wings. Make us to know our end and the measure of our days, what it is, so that we may know how frail we are. Into thine hand we commend our spirits. Redeem us, O thou God of truth. 
Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only doeth wondrous things, and blessed be his glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Now there are 20 sentences taken from 20 different psalms and all put together, but can't you and I pray that prayer every day? But you see, we who live since the New Testament have much more than the psalms to lift our hearts in praise. There is the song of Moses, but there is also the song of the Lamb. We leaf through the hymn books and we find many such wonders of praise. Way back in the 16th century, before 1593, William Keith, had written, All people that on earth do dwell, sing to the Lord with cheerful voice. Him serve with mirth, his praise forth tell, come ye before him and rejoice. And by a hundred years later, at the end of the 17th century, Isaac Watts wrote, We'll crowd thy gates with thankful songs, high as the heavens our voices raise and earth with her ten thousand tongues shall fill thy courts with sounding praise. Then a hundred years later, in the eighteenth century, Charles Wesley wrote, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of his grace. My gracious Master and my God, assist me to proclaim, to spread through all the earth abroad the honors of thy name. And then about 150 years ago, in the first half of the 19th century, Reginald Heber gave us this, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, early in the morning our songs shall rise to thee. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Holy, 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 all the saints adore thee, casting down their golden crowns around the glassy sea cherubim and seraphim falling down before thee, who wert and art and evermore shalt be. Then, less than a hundred years ago, in the last half of the 19th century, an anonymous German wrote a hymn in German, Beim Frühen Morgenlicht, which has been translated as we know it, When morning gilds the skies, my heart awaking cries, may Jesus Christ be praised. Alike at work and prayer to Jesus I repair. May Jesus Christ be praised. Let earth's wide circle round in joyful notes resound. May Jesus Christ be praised. Let air and sea and sky from depth to height reply. May Jesus Christ be praised. Now coming closer in the first half of our own 20th century, one of the few hymns that has permanent value is a great hymn of praise. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed thine hand hast provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord unto me. Now, here we are in the last half of the 20th century, and the hymn of praise of our half of the century has not yet emerged. The one that is most sung is Swedish and is more than a hundred years old, with a translation that has been popularized throughout the world. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. But today, 
We cannot write the hymn of praise that shall mark the last half of this century, but we can furnish the orchestra hall of our hearts, the academy of music of our souls, where the Holy Spirit can lift the song beyond all knowing. We sing it not in the golden cadence of poesy, as Shakespeare said, nor in the sweep of meter and in the sound of rhyme, but we offer our hearts as an empty staff on which the heavenly musician may write the notes as he pleases, in whatever tempo he pleases, in whatever mode he pleases, and we know in advance that its melody will be pleasantness and peace. And our God and Father, we worship thee, we thank thee, we adore thee, we praise thee, we rejoice in thee, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.